everyone. Good to be with you. Good morning online. Uh, let me start with a bit of business. If you drive a white Camry, license plate 2RZR527, uh, you can slip out and uh, turn your headlights off, or you can catch a ride with somebody else after the service. Uh, it's completely up to you, so we're good either way. Um, I want to start with prayer, uh, not just for the sermon itself, but also just for us as a family. It's a season of celebration, season of Christmas, and there's a lot of joy that comes with that, and some of us come into the room with a lively step and a light heart, and um, praise God, that's wonderful, that's a good thing to celebrate. Uh, It's been a difficult season and continues to be a difficult season for us as a family, and so some of us come into this room with a very heavy heart. Um, Most of you probably know by now that Rob Runge has passed into the presence of Jesus this last week, and um, that's a a heartache, and yet it's a joy knowing that he's with the Lord. Some of you are carrying your own burdens, and I just want to lift us all up to the Lord and ask for his help and his strength this morning. So would you pray with me? Lord, we we are grateful that you are our Father and that you care for us. Lord, there are times when that comes easy, just the joy and the smile and the laughter, it just pours out. And there's other times, Lord, when our hearts are torn and and everything's heavy. And in both places, you're our Father. And we ask you to meet us. Each one, we're in a different spot this morning. Would you meet us here and minister to us and grow us, help us, encourage us, strengthen us, speak to us through your word. Lord, um... I pray for each of us that's hurting. I I pray especially for the Rungi family, but I pray for all of us, Lord, with the hard things that we have. Would you please meet us in this moment? Would you help us to um, really engage with the reality of Christmas that comes into a real world? And um, may we know your presence and your power through your word. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may have uh, had occasion to start in one direction and find things going in a very different direction. Um, If you ever made a wrong phone call, right, wrong number, sometimes that gets a little funny, sometimes it's a little bit of a waste of time, sometimes it makes the news. So a lot of you are probably aware that this week there was a group of uh, ninth grade boys, a basketball team in Michigan that was putting together a FaceTime group. Uh, to just kind of communicate team news, and they were adding different players to the, to the group and um, got one number wrong. And so the supposed player that was added to the group was surprised that he was added, and so he, he, uh, he sent back a message saying, did you mean to add me? And the, the guy that was kind of managing the group thought it was his friend just being funny and so he had some sort of funny remark and it went back and forth for a little bit and the, then the guy said do you know who I am and no who are you he said well I'm Sean Murphy Bunting a defensive back for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers <laughs> and uh the kid who was managing the group thought yeah right this is my friend just being goofy And so they go back and forth a little bit, and then the next thing you know, there's a selfie of Sean Murphy Bunting in the Tampa Bay Buccaneer uh, locker room, smiling and going like this. 
And then they think, now by this time, other kids are getting on the group, and they think, yeah, right, he's, he's cut and pasted that off the internet, and we don't believe it. So then Sean Murphy Bunting goes live, and the boys go nuts, because then they realize, wait a minute, we thought this was happening, it's totally not happening, this is, this is real, something amazing's happening, we are in the locker room with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and their star, one of their star defensive backs is talking to us, how cool is that? And then Leonard Fournette walks into the room. He's their star running back. And he grabbed Murphy Bunting's phone, says, hi, I'm Leonard. Let me introduce you to the guys. And so he goes around the room. Here's Mike Evans, who's the wide receiver on a path that will probably land him in the Hall of Fame. And then here is Richard Sherman, defensive back, who is almost certainly going to be in the Hall of Fame. And now here's Rob Gronkowski, the tight end, who's absolutely going to be in the Hall of Fame. And all this time, the guys are going, this is amazing, this is amazing. This is what we were expecting, what's going on, this is cool. And then it hits him, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is the Buccaneers. Hold on a minute, you know, I don't care about all these super players here. We want the goat, we want the goat. We want. Now, if you don't know much about sports, goat means greatest of all time. And that's the label that is applied to the quarterback of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Tom Brady. And Fournette says, I'm sorry, the GOAT is in a meeting. And the boys are like, we'll wait. (laughs) Yeah, but do we want to? I mean, these are professional football players doing their thing. And yeah, a bunch of ninth grade boys somewhere in Michigan are going to wait. We got our stuff to do. But Fournette remembered what it was like to be a kid at that age, longing to do something great, and so he waits with him online for like 10 minutes, just chatting, until Brady comes out. He hops on the line, and the boys lose their minds. <laughs> They're talking to Tom Brady, and, and then the call ends, and Murphy Bunting says, don't give my phone number to anyone. <laughs> but he grew up in Michigan, so it just was one digit difference, and accidentally everything changed. Now, as that was unfolding, I'm sure there was a time when it's like, yeah, this is yeah, this is dumb. Stop it. You're being goofy, whatever friend this is. And then, wait, this is real? Hold on. And they're working their way up the food chain from current stars to, these guys are probably Hall of Famers, to, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What about the greatest of all time? Can we talk about him? That's actually the dynamic of this morning's passage. If you want to take your Bible, open it to Luke chapter 1. And we are looking at the story of Christmas through the original songs of Christmas. Luke unfolds the uh, narrative about Jesus and about Christmas through four songs. Uh, Last week, we looked at the song of Mary. This week, we look at the song of Zechariah. Next week, we'll look at the song of the angels. And then the following week, we'll look at, well, you'll have to come back and hear that. But it's the name of the song in Latin, because I know you're really interested in that, is Nunc Dimittis. So you got to come back for the Nunc. You can't miss that. So these four songs unfold the narrative of Christmas. And this morning we're in the second song, which is the one Zechariah has. And um, as this scene unfolds, it's kind of like that phone call where people come into a situation expecting one thing, and as it shifts, it's totally different, and it blows their minds. Uh, We've already seen, and you can back up and read this as you have a chance, but in Luke chapter 1, God sends Gabriel, the angel, to the temple. Well, Zechariah, who is an elderly priest, is ministering in there, and he says, your prayers have been answered. You're going to have a baby? I'm like, (laughs) give me a break. I'm an old man, and even more importantly, my wife's an old woman. This ain't happening, right? 
And the angel says, who do you think you are? Uh, you know, smart mouth, you're just going to be quiet for the next nine months. You're not going to be able to talk. And, and uh, from context, we also understand he's not really able to hear. So he's just kind of closed into this uh, sensory deprivation chamber with the last thing he's heard, the words of God ringing in his ears that he didn't quite embrace. And nine months later, it's time for the baby to be born. And we're going to pick up the flow right there. In between those two things, Mary has learned that she's going to be pregnant with Jesus. Elizabeth, Zechariah's wife, is her cousin. She goes and spends time with him. She's recently gone back to be with Joseph. And now the baby is born. And if you have your Bible, we'll start in verse 57. The song itself starts in 67, but we're going to pick up the narrative flow first. And I'll just kind of unpack it a little at a time as we go through and then draw some conclusions for us. Something that you might find helpful, though, is uh, three things to notice about the song before we get there. One is, um, what should be jarring to us, it's not because we read it backwards through all of our experience in time, but if we were reading it initially, especially if we were experiencing it as Zechariah, that would really be shocking. Um, it's, it's the day to celebrate John the Baptist, right? The miracle baby. He is a miracle baby. Mom and dad, way too old to have kids, and here he is, and this is amazing, and he's going to be this great prophet of God. I mean, he's somebody to be celebrated. He's genuine Hall of Fame in God's economy. And it's his day. It's his, it's his day, and it's his dad. So you would think, hey, did I tell you about my son, the great prophet of God? Who, yeah. By the way, he's the greatest who's ever been born. He has 12 verses in this song. And two of them are devoted to his son. So he's at his son's party. And his son's pretty amazing. And he can't stop talking about the other kid who's not even been born yet. Ten verses go to Jesus. Two go to John. Which is, it really ought to be arresting to us. Because dads don't do that. There must be something really extraordinary. Um, second thing about this song that's good to notice is that he, as he's engaging with the reality of what God is doing, right, as he's, as he's grappling with and understanding that, he focuses our attention on three things. He says God is merciful, right, God, mercy is different than grace. We, we tend to use the words a little sloppily, and we tend to use grace when we actually mean mercy, Grace is God favoring us just because he's a favoring God. It's rooted in his character. It's rooted in who he is. Mercy is God doing something for us because he sees our need and is moved by it. And so in this story, he talks about God's mercy. And what he's saying is God sees your need. He sees the messed up world. He sees the problems. He sees the heartaches. And he's moved by that and he's going to act. Okay? So he roots it in mercy. Second thing he roots it in is the character of God itself. He will talk about God's faithfulness. This is something God's been doing. As it turns out, he's going to talk about Abraham roughly 2,000 years prior. Estimates, because the chronology is argued over anywhere from maybe 1800 B.C. to 2200 B.C., so we'll split it and talk 2,000 years. Something has been going on for 2,000 years, and now it's coming about because that's the kind of God we serve. He's faithful. He keeps his word. He fulfills his covenant promises. Right? So he's saying, here's what's going on. God is merciful and he's meeting us because we have a need. He's moved and he's going he's to help us. 
God is faithful and he's always been working. For 2,000 years, he's been working something out and he's not gonna stop now. He is going to keep his word, he's active. And then the last piece that kind of flows through here is the outcome is intended to be shalom for you and me. That we would live in a restored reality. Okay, shalom is peace, prince of peace, peace on earth. We talk about peace a lot at Christmas time, and we have we've really tamed the word too much. It means what we say it means, but it means a whole lot more than that. And so when he's using these ideas, it's like all that is good and true and beautiful and right and vibrant and healthy, everything in right relationship, the world being as God intended. That's what I'm talking about. I'm here, God, to restore that. And that's, that's what Zechariah is looking at as God works in him. So that's the, that's the song, but let's get a running start at it by looking at the um, narrative. Pick it up in verse 57. The time came for Elizabeth to give birth. She bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. They would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. So they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. Everything about this story has been strange so far. You guys are way too old. How could you be having children? And yet you are. God's obviously done something extraordinary. And now it's the big celebration. He's going to be circumcised. He's going to be named. Well, obviously, you're proud of him. You're going to name him after yourself or one of the family names. That's how we do it. No, he's going to be named John. John? We don't know anyone named John. There's nobody around here named John. Nobody in your family's named John. That's a dumb idea. Let's check with Zechariah, who can't actually hear or speak. So they make signs and give him the board, and he writes, his name is John. Wow, that's, that's unexpected. And then it gets weirder. Verse 64, immediately his, that's Zechariah's mouth, was opened and his tongue loosened and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what? What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with them. All right, this is, this is bizarre. What's going on? God's doing something. Don't really understand, but it's pretty cool. Now we get to the song. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, here's the song. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, um, a horn of salvation probably gives the wrong picture to most of us because we probably picture something kind of like a bugle, and it is actually the business end of a bull, right? Um, there's a, a, an imagery that flows through the Old Testament about savior and warrior, God, and, and how he works through his people. He calls, he calls one of the tribes this one time. It's like a horn of a bull rampaging through the enemies, tossing him where it will and killing whom he will and delivering as he sees fit. And Zechariah is saying, whoa, the mighty God is showing up to wreak havoc with the enemies and clear the path for what's good and right. Verse 70, 
as this is Zechariah's continuing talking about what God's doing, he, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, right? He's tying in with not only here's the merciful thing God's doing, but this is the plan he's been working all along. That we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Okay, stop for just a second. There's an interesting little book ending that goes on here. If you look in 71, he says, here's what God's doing. He's saving us from our enemies. He's delivering us from the hand of those who hate us. And if you look at verse 73, he says, we are being delivered from the hand of our enemies, right? So in the middle of that, then, he says, here's why. Here's what's going on. Two things. He's doing this to show mercy, and he's doing this to remember his holy covenant, right? Again, he's highlighting God is moved by our need, and he's going to act on our behalf. And God has always been working, and he's got a plan he's working out. You can trust him. He's absolutely faithful in that. He keeps his word. And the end result of that is that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days, which would be one expression of what it means to live a life of shalom, to live in right relationship with God. Holiness and righteousness, don't over-religify uh, those. Okay? Now, they are religious terms, and, and the things that we attach to them are legitimate, but don't miss the more foundational meaning. Holiness is to be set apart. And righteousness is fundamentally to live the way that God designed us to live, live rightly in response to him. So it really, at its most basic sense, he's saying, I just want to be able to, without fear, live in right relationship with you, set apart to you, living life in right relationship to you. That's what shalom really is. So there's all of our themes packed into that section. So far, he hasn't said a word about his son. He's just talking about Jesus. And then he talks about his son. Verse 76, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You'll go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. So here's who John is. You're the one that's promised from of old. You're preparing the way. You're, you're preaching the word. You're going to point to the Savior. That's really cool. But I really want to, I know it's your birthday party, but I really want to get back to talking about Jesus because that's where the really, really cool stuff happens. He's the greatest. Verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise, which is an image for Christ, shall, shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet in the way of peace. Okay, so Zechariah and everyone gather for what they think is a, a little bit uncommon, a little bit extraordinary, but... Nonetheless, this is what we do kind of experience, naming this child as he's being circumcised, and then everything shifts, and, and nothing goes as they expect, and it just keeps getting better and better. God reveals, for God heals Zechariah, and he reveals what he's doing, so Zechariah prophesies, and he gives this song that is at the heart of what Christmas is really about. And the thing that's so beautiful about this is, is that this song tells us that Christmas is for the world we actually live in, not the world that we wished that we lived in, right? Sometimes when we come to the Christmas season, we hope it's going to be a season of extra cocoa and a relief from kind of some of the junk of life. Can we just make nice for a little while? And 
maybe have a little more happiness, a little more kindness, a little Christmas spirit, right? And we have songs all about that. And some of them are just selfish. Here's what I want, here's what I want, here's what I want. But the, the ones that I like are all the schmaltzy kind of old ones that are family and snow crunching and kids bunching and all that kind of stuff. And it's kind of a cool picture. There's nothing wrong with that other than if snow's crunching here, we're really in trouble. Um, but it, it's like this sentimental picture. And what happens when it's not that way? Some of us come into the room this morning, and, and it's really nice. It's a, good, it's a good time, good season. We go, yeah, it's good times. And some of us come into the road, room this morning, and there's no spring in our step. We're clawing our way down the aisle just to get into a seat because we're totally torn up inside. And the, the reality is Christmas is for this world, all of it. As I was sitting working on this sermon earlier this week in my living room, I was listening to one of those schmaltzy songs. I've got my um, playlist, and um, I was just working away, and, and it was in the background, and, and Nat King Cole came on. Now, if you don't know who he is, I'm sorry. That's a problem, right? He's one of the greatest jazz musicians of all time, great jazz pianist, had his little combo group, and, and some of his songs are actually unforgettable. And <laughs> you guys did better with that than I thought. Okay. Um, yeah, he's a great vocalist. And he's singing, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Beautiful, wonderful, one of my favorite renditions. It's super. And then it suddenly struck me, wait a minute, this is Nat King Cole singing this. Hold on a minute. So I, I pull up, I, I Google on my phone, um, the particular arrangement was recorded in 1960. And it pops up with the album cover, which is a picture of Nat King Cole right on the cover. And Nat King Cole's an African-American. And he was born in Birmingham, Alabama. And his, the, the peak of his career was in the 50s and 60s. Now suddenly it's like, wait a minute, this isn't just this schmaltzy, poppy kind of sound to this. It's actually quite a great Christmas hymn. It's powerful lyrics. It's like there's something more going on here. This man who's singing this, and I, I don't know where he stood spiritually, but the, the, the things he's articulating go to the very heart of the problems that he's facing, right? Just a few years prior, in 1956, he was doing a concert in his hometown of Birmingham. And he had to do three concerts. The first two at normal hours were for the white folk. And the African-Americans had to gather close to midnight to hear him sing, because you didn't mix. Like, wow, and he's singing Joy to the World. In fact, at that particular concert, and at people, you know, white black, every, every ethnicity, they loved him. He was an amazing musician. That's why they're there. Only some people showed up for other reasons. And because God blessed him with more melanin in his skin than they had in theirs, they hated him. And they showed up literally to kill him. And three songs into the concert, six guys jumped up on stage and started beating on him. Thankfully, the police had been tipped off. So there's both plain clothes and, and, and um, uniformed officers. There's just this pandemonium on the stage. It's this melee breaks out. The six guys are arrested. Nat King Cole's not seriously injured, but he's deeply shaken up. And this is the guy, and this is the setting, and that's the world where he's singing, joy to the world, the Lord has come. And that's exactly the right setting. I mean, the setting itself was wrong, but that's when we need the song, the next verse. Let earth receive her king. 
Not here's a cute baby in a manger that makes a nice card and a decoration as you sit around the fire with your family. It, that's all good. But that's not the world we live in. This isn't a season to hit pause and hope that we can all make nice for six weeks before we go back to pandemonium. This is a broken, messed up, sinful, wicked world. And it hurts us. And it breaks us down. And we add to the confusion and we add to the mess and we add to the sin. And that's the world. That's exactly the world that an African-American guy visiting a bunch of racist whites in the South needs to be able to sing, joy to the world, the Lord has come. And even if you jump up on stage and try to hit me, it doesn't change the truth. God is not leaving us here. He refuses to. That's what Zechariah has tapped into. Christmas songs, you know, again, I already told you I'm not picking on them. I do love the, you know, all that stuff. But at the end of the day, the, the, the paradigm of a Christmas song is not a lullaby. It's a battle hymn. It is God declaring war on everything that's gone wrong in this world and saying, I've come to fix that. I've come to change that. It's a declaration of war and a pledge of deliverance for those that are his. And Zechariah actually keys into that. Don't, don't miss this fact. And for all the joy that's in this moment, his son is being circumcised and may be not joyful for the son, but it's joyful for everyone else. And all the promise here, he's talking about John the Baptist, the greatest one ever born of a woman, Jesus said. And Jesus himself, who then eclipsed that in, in, infinitely, those boys will have to die violent deaths before the Christmas carol can be true. This isn't naive, this isn't sentimental, this is God speaking into the brokenness heartache and mess of our world. So if you're in a place where you're just ready to celebrate, please do. But if you're in a place where you feel shredded, that's what Christmas is to address. So let's look a little bit just at Zechariah and kind of put ourselves into his frame of reference and maybe feel a little bit of what he's feeling and then we can bring it to us. Zechariah walks into this room um, Excited, but he's a man who's, who's old and weary. Uh, one of the things that I find is the further I age, the harder it is to get excited about things. The, the more you just get tired. Not physically, I mean, that happens at some point too, but there's this emotional drain because life is hard. For all the beauty, all the goodness, all of the extraordinary things, and there is plenty of that. There's no reason for us to be these really negative, downer kind of people but it is still an uphill journey the whole way. And that takes a toll, and Zechariah has seen that toll. He's been praying for years. When Gabriel shows up in the temple, he says, your prayers have been answered. And I'm just thinking, Zechariah has got to restrain himself at least a little bit to say, oh, really? He's been praying this for decades. We're gonna have a baby? I mean, come on. It wasn't, it wasn't just, oh, wouldn't it be great to have a baby? Wouldn't we just long for a baby? Their culture, it's like, you have to have children. 
If you don't, there's something wrong. God's not blessing you. Something's gone horribly awry. It's not a choice. And here we long for this, and, and you've not answered this for decades. Elizabeth is way too old to have children. I'm way too old to be a dad. And now you answer? I'm really pleased with that, but I'm also really tired. How old would he have been at John the Baptist's high school graduation, do you think? <laughs> I'm coming, John. Can we throw the ball, Dad? Yeah. <laughs> He's been really worn down. This is hard. This is a weary man. He's been worn down because he's the faithful one, right? If you read the beginning of, of, of chapter one, it says that uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous. They were blameless. They were faithful. What's the context? Do you remember what his day job is? Zechariah is a priest. He's a priest in the midst of horrible corruption. I mean, it's the worst time and he's trying to be a faithful leader. But the leaders around him are totally corrupt. Remember, who, who was it that Jesus, I mean, that's like maybe 30 years later, but Jesus is always after who? Who does, he, who does he lose it with? Only one group, the corrupt leaders. He just goes at them. Because they're the ones that are supposed to be representing God, and they are not. Who runs the temple that he kicks out, that he says, this place has been desecrated? That's the priests. Right, the, the, the religious and the political rulers are a mess. This is during the reign of Herod the Great. Great is really not a great term for him. Herod the menacing, Herod the crazy, Herod the murderous, Herod the incredibly effective because he has no moral fiber whatsoever and will do anything. All of those labels fit. He ordered the execution of all kinds of people at his death, because he knew if he died alone, people would give gifts. They'd dance and throw parties. But if I kill your husband, I kill your wife, I kill your kid, I kill your dad, and I do that throughout the land, then there's going to be mourning. And there ought to be, because I'll be dead. He thought that was a good idea. He killed all kinds of close advisors and friends and family. His favorite wife, right? He had a series of them, and his favorite wife, he killed her. And two favorite sons. That's the political ruler. Now, how does the religious ruler work? Well, let's go back to that favorite wife. When he married her, she was below his station substantially, right? And, and in a culture that cares about those things, he's the king. I can't marry a commoner. What am I going to do about this? Because I want to marry her. I know what I'll do. I'll grab her brother and, hey, dude, you're the high priest now. Well, there's a really fine, virtuous reason to be the leader of God's worship. I married your sister and you guys don't measure up. So now you're the high priest, right? And, and when you're not, it's one of your brothers. That's the high priests when Zechariah is trying to do his thing. He's surrounded by corruption by people who have no sense of morality, no sense of God, and he's trying to stand righteously. Some of us know what that's like. That is a wearying place to be, to live in integrity when the world around you is literally losing its mind. This is tough. This is a hard place. 
Zechariah is tired. He's worn out from this, I'm sure. And then look at this one statement. Now, it's a, it's a prophecy, of course, but I am sure that the, the, the language that this takes is a partnership between the Holy Spirit who's saying, here's what I want to communicate, and the longings and the, the, the feelings and thoughts in Zechariah's own heart, because that seems to be the way inspiration works. And look at his dream. Verse 73, you know, you're doing this, the oath you swore to our father Abraham 2,000 years ago, we would be delivered from the hands of our enemies and might serve you without fear. All I want to do is live a simple life. I just want to honor you. I want to live in right relationship with you. I want to live my life for its full extent. And I just don't want to be afraid that doing that is going to create havoc or cause harm or get me killed or get me fill in the blank. Right? It is hard to live righteously when the world is going completely the opposite direction and angrily so. That's... Zechariah. And when he understands, not just who his son is, but that opens the door for Messiah, for God to change everything, well, I think we can cut him some slack that he gave Jesus five times the press that he gave to his own son. That's pretty exciting. Well, there's one other thing I want to point out in this because the point is not just Zechariah, and, and some people might read it this way, and it's really important we be careful to understand what's intended here. Zechariah is in this difficult place. Uh, there's problems in politics of his day are a mess, and Jesus is going to fix that. That's not actually what it's saying. He will ultimately fix that. Those things do matter, but what he's really saying here is that God is going to go deeper. God is going to go deeper than the politics and problems that we face. He's going to go beyond the experience of this moment into the things that are enduring. And that shows up if you look in verse um, 77, 76, 77 is where he's talking about John. You're going to be called the prophet of the Most High. You'll go before the Lord prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, right? I'm coming for something deeper. I'm not just gonna change your circumstances. I'm not just gonna change your fortunes. I'm not gonna just change your politics. I'm not just gonna change your finances. I'm not just gonna change your health. I'm not gonna just change your relationships. Those things are worthy of consideration. I care about those things, but I could fix everything and within weeks, hours, minutes, you'd ruin it again. Because your problem is not just outside you, it's inside too. To roughly paraphrase Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he said, there's a line between good and evil and it runs right through my own heart. And God says, yeah, I can't just, for me to come and fix these things without fixing this, it's never gonna work. So we're gonna start with the deeper work, I'm going to focus on the things that will allow forgiveness of sins and restoration to relationship. Yes, it matters what's happening in the world. Yes, it matters the morality of your culture. Yes, it matters the policies that people are making. Yes, it matters what you do with money, what you do with time, how you treat each other. Yes, it matters that sickness and death are part of this. It's, all of those things matter, but they're all rooted 
Those are manifestations. They're all rooted in something deeper. I'm not just going to treat the symptoms. I'm going to treat the depth of the problem. And so he reveals that in this song through Zechariah. Zechariah was weary, I'm sure. Some of us are probably weary too. Just think of the big news items this week. Just, just this week. Let's confine ourselves to this week. CNN just fired one of their major anchors because of his misconduct. And they haven't released what all that was. But his misconduct in aiding and abetting or somehow assisting his brother, who is a major power player in politics, who way overstepped a line and violated everything, and he's gone. That's the big news that's just breaking. Or... I told you about a bunch of high school boys from Michigan who got to be in the Tampa Bay Buccaneer locker room to start. That's not actually the biggest high school story out of Michigan this week, is it? There's a kid that goes in and kills four other students and seven other people have been seriously wounded. How horrible. And, and it's like, will this ever stop? And then the thing that, you know, each story seems to be just a little different. And in this one, you, you always wonder, what's going on? What are the home dynamics? Is this kid just running amok or have mom and dad? I don't know. And, I, you know, I'm not in a position to judge things. But what kind of parents run? Their, their son is on trial for his life, and the whole world is angry at him. Right, And he has done evil, and parents should not condone that, but he is their son. And they say, bye, we're grabbing our money, we're going to go hide because we don't want to get in trouble. It's like, wow, wow, everything about this story is messed up. And that's what we're waking up to. We've got this pandemic, it's going on and on and on and on, and now we get Omicron. We are going to run out of Greek, Greek alphabet, and we're going to have to switch to Sanskrit. Right, this thing just keeps going on. All the turmoil that creates and all the heartache and the suffering, and it's like, wow, those are, the, those are the big stories. And then there's the personal ones. The pain that I'm experiencing now, that you're experiencing now, the heartache, the loss, the struggle. The fact that we're all torn up inside because this happened. Some of us, maybe we're all torn up inside because I did this. I did this. I blame myself for that. I don't know what to do with it. That's the world we live in. That's the world that's supposed to sing joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. That's what Zechariah is tapping into. And when he says, um, forgiveness of sins is at the center, he's saying, look, there's something bigger than circumstances. Those do matter. Please don't hear me saying those are inconsequential. They are not. But they're manifestations. He's going to go after the real enemies, the deeper enemies, the ones that will destroy us if they're not dealt with. But that's, that's what this Christmas carol's about. And it doesn't unpack that. It just says he's going to deal with sin. But we know from the rest of the unpacking in the life of Jesus, he deals with three enemies that we would have no hope without. Let me just read you some verses to remind you of these things. Hebrews 12 says, we have this cloud of witnesses that have gone before testifying to what a faithful life looks like, and Jesus has gone before. He's the author and perfecter of our faith, and he endured the cross. There's the gospel, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Then verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against 
sin. There's your enemy, sin. Or in 1 Peter, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. There's your enemy, sin. By the way, the enemy's in the gates. That's gotta be dealt with. Can't just transform a society. I gotta transform you first. Or how about this one? First Corinthians 15 talks about Jesus being raised as the first fruits of many people. In Adam, everyone died. In Christ, people are made alive and will ultimately be resurrected. And then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, or the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Somebody's got to beat that because I can't. Somebody's got to conquer that. And, and Jesus is the one who says, the one who loves me, even, even if they die, they live. If that weren't true, life would just be a howling despair. It's hard enough as it is. But he's conquered death. He's conquered sin. And how about this one? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, rulers, authorities. Right? There's a cosmic battle that's going on. And our enemies are the demonic realm. Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. There's the enemy. Hebrews, since the children, that's talking about us as humans, share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, took of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil. He came to destroy the devil. He, he defeated sin. He defeated Satan. He defeated death. Now, I'm free from the power of sin, but I'm not free from the presence of sin, and I still battle, but the battle is different. And I can lean into the empowerment of the Holy Spirit who lives in me, and things can change. I will still, if God does not return, pass from this earth. I will stop breathing and open my eyes in heaven. That's a painful process, but it is not a hopeless one. It is a hope-filled one because he has conquered death. And that enemy who is so powerful and so pervasive, and I can't even understand him or see him, who's actually gunning for me, who's got me in the crosshairs, he's defeated as well. He's a lion who's roaring, looking to devour, but somebody broke his teeth. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. It's not your adversary, the devil, is looking for somebody to devour. Run. It's resist. Everything's shifted. Joy to the world. Joy to this world. Joy to this messed up, broken world and this messed up, broken guy because the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Zechariah nails that. So I don't know where you are this morning. I sure hope that some of you have big smiles and a lot of fun right now. I suspect some do. I know a lot of you just barely making it. Christmas is about all of that. It's about Jesus entering for all of that and saying, I got this. 
and I got you. Works out over time. Here's another thing to note. And you can look at this yourself. Verses 68 and 69 speak in the past tense about things that are going to come. They're so certain, but it's like it's already happened. 78 and 79 are looking to the future. There's this tension of what's already happened and what's not yet here. Remember, Zechariah is spending 10 of the 12 verses celebrating the mighty hero. And at this point, Jesus is three inches long and weighs an ounce. That is not much of a heavyweight champion. It takes some time for God to work out his plan perfectly. When Zechariah gives his song, it's been going 2,000 years. And it's been going another 2,000 now. And he's saying, it's okay. It's okay. I'm at work. Remember my faithfulness. I'm at work. I see your pain. I am merciful. I am moved. I want to meet you there. I will give light into your darkness and firmly set your feet on the path to shalom. Trust me. I'm going to ask the ushers to come. We're going to take our offering. And I would just ask that whatever God's doing in your heart, you'd listen to him. May the joy of Christmas, whether it's a tearful, hard-fought joy or a mirthful, light-hearted joy, may it fill your heart this season. Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy and the promise that you have declared war on all that is wrong in this world and have made a pledge to rescue us who are your children. Pray that you would reach more children. Lord, I know you want more in your family. Maybe there's people in this room who need to just surrender and trust. I pray that they would. People that we're connected with, people around the world, as we give these gifts, Lord, I pray that you would use them to further that to spread the good news of Jesus to a world that so desperately needs it. Lord, may we worship you this season. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.